Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. Sandman number three, Dream a Little Dream of Me, published with a cover date of March 1989, featuring art by Sam Keith and Mike Drigenberg, and lettering by Todd Klein and Robbie Bush once again as colorist. Glenn, uh, I think it'll be interesting to talk about this one because I think even though we're only three issues into Sandman here, I think that this may actually not be a Sandman comic. I think this is a Hellblazer comic, but uh, we'll talk about that as we go. Yeah, right. This this issue is way lighter on literary illusions than uh, the previous issue was. But this is uh, basically a Hellblazer story. So we are still going to be talking about how Sandman is intersecting with other bits of, of literature. And uh, I think you're going to have a little bit of work cut out for you in the capacity as a resident comics historian. Uh, with that said, uh, should we should we jump into this? So we open with a description of a, a woman whose body seems to be decaying around her. Uh, we don't know who this individual is. Um, it's an outward panel of a house. We don't know where the house is. We don't know if we're in England. We don't know if we're in America. We don't quite know much of anything um, other than the person is a fan of Radio 1. And they seem to have Sandman's pouch the end of last issue, he was off to go get the pouch because of all of the, his um, items. It was the one that was taken merely by a human. And so he thought John Constantine should be an easy person to get something from. Then we cut on the second page to, said John Constantine, uh, waking up to his alarm at 1045 in the morning, which is when I prefer my alarm to go off as well. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back to this This first page this woman in the room because she is not well right we learned that her hair is coming out in clumps her skin is flaking and infected and she's covered in bed sores and she's starving but we're told that none of that matters to her because all of the the pain associated with that in fact everything else in the world goes away when the dreams come and it's pretty clear to us, right, that she's using the the sand, the dream sand in Dream's pouch as a, a type of drug, right? So there's a, there's you know something working here on the the level of metaphor, while and 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 also on the on the level of being literally true as well. And uh, this woman is going to come back in a in an important way at the end. But this is just a real sad, real depressing, uh, really kind of a distraught way to open up this story. And she's using it as a drug, and she's got many ways she can ingest it or rub it into her skin. And she's debating that as she's counting to 100 to delay the satisfaction. But, I mean, delaying to 100 after having probably recently come down from something to, to only delay that long before, again, getting herself high um, and then keeping herself bedridden in this state is uh, – um, it's a kind of a very – twisted and sad and tragic tale yeah just one more victim of of dreams imprisonment by roderick burgess and i think we're going to continue to encounter more of them as the the series continues as you do brent i love when john constantine here wakes up it's it is as you say ten forty five a.m and his alarm clock buzzes that's just kind of a, a nice throwback you know not using a cell phone as an alarm <laughs> and then uh this 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 clock alarm which is also a radio uh begins to play the song dream a little dream of me and as that lyric appears on the on the page we actually get our 
title page because Dream a Little Dream of Me is the the title of this issue. And it's a, an image of John Constantine smoking in bed while the names of the creative team appear on discarded books and notebooks and, and loose pieces of paper on the floor. I think this is a, a really uh, just a clever, uh, clever title page. But I think what's really important here, right, is that John Constantine is not a new character, which is why we even recognize him when he's on the page. And so here, Brent, I think is where we need you to take up your role as the uh, the comics historian. And uh, tell us a little bit about this character. Who Who is John Constantine? And John Constantine was created by Alan Moore during his run on the Swamp Thing comic in the um, 1980s. And he's kind of a ne'er-do-well he might be described as like a wizard or, or sorcerer or something, but that makes you think of Doctor Strange from the Marvel Universe and Sorcerer Supreme. And John Constantine is the farthest thing from a superhero. He's, he's intentionally made to look like Sting. So whenever you're trying to figure out the art, then um, Sting is who he's supposed to look like, not Keanu Reeves. It's never quite clear. There's never usually ever any images where like, you know, there's fireballs or arcs of power coming out of his hands. He's not that kind of a character. So he's, he's kind of off to the side in the DC continuity, which later, you know, these become part of the vertigo imprint within DC. Um, but he's even less of a super powered person than say shade, the changing man or even dream, uh, is in his own way. So uh, among other things, Constantine, he's dealing with devils, he's dealing with demons. It's very much kind of a a throwback to kind of traditional horror and oftentimes kind of even blending in some weird fiction of an Lovecraftian kind of nightmares and such. Yeah, right. I would I would describe the Hellblazer comics and the character of John Constantine as uh, being a part of the uh, the occult detective subgenre of horror fiction or or weird fiction. Uh, this is a tradition that's uh, really goes goes back. I mean, some would say all the way to Edgar Allan Poe, but I think probably more famously to Algernon Blackwood's character John Silence and William Hope Hodgson's character called Karnacki the Ghost Finder, which is an amazing name. <laughs> uh, people people know this tradition. I think more on on screen. I think you know thinking even of, of recent types of uh, occult detectives uh the the tv show angel the character angel the spinoff of buffy the vampire slayer right is basically an occult detective show and this is actually a, a genre of fiction that, that in fact we have another show on the network devoted to this is the show that i do with uh, brandon buddha it's a show called elder sign a weird fiction podcast we do cover poe we cover lovecraft algernon blackwood william hope hodgson really all of uh, these types of, of weird fiction and, and horror fiction writers. Occult Detective is only one small part of that. We do supernatural horror. We do Lovecraftian cosmic horror as well. And I have to say, I think it would be a lot of fun, actually, at some point to do a Dream King and Elder Sign team up to cover some Hellblazer comics. Yeah, that would be a great idea because John Constantine fits in a lot with down there luck heroes or even antiheroes that are featured in a lot of those other stories that you and Brandon are talking about. Well, on that note, let, let's get back to what's happening on the page here, because I think that uh, there are some important details about this image of Constantine smoking in his bed that we need to address. It's going to shed some light on some things that uh, that I said last time. So last time you had mentioned uh, the colors of the yellow or gold and the purple hues when Sandman was lying um, in the bed at uh, Kane's um, House of uh, Mysteries trying to recover. Here we see a similar color palette in which uh, very similar colored sheets 
Right. I think we had a suspicion last issue that is definitely proving to be true in this issue, which is that what we are seeing on the page in the older collections that we're using as yellow is actually meant to be brown. And you've done some uh, some detecting of your own to determine that that's definitely true by looking at, uh, at, at updated and touched up editions of these stories. Yes. And I think one of the kind of clues in this particular panel is that his trench coat is hanging over the chair and then the next page we see him wearing it. It's the same shade as um, the blanket or top sheet that is over him here, which so it's likely more of a traditional kind of beige that his trench coat is depicted to be. A lot of this, I think, has to do with the colors used in printing of comics in this late 80s time frame. Right. So I will just take back everything I said about the Christ imagery in the, the previous issue, uh, though it still might be worth uh, worth keeping an eye on that. But we can uh, we can set that aside for now. Well, this this scene continues with Constantine starting his day, and he, he says that he feels like somebody is trying to tell him something. And he's certain that he caught the smell of magic in the air right when he woke up. Uh, and he's also just had this nightmare about having his intestines crocheted into body bags, which does not sound like a fun dream and uh he does as he puts on this uh this trademark trench coat uh the radio now plays mr sandman we're going to get a lot of these types of songs in the background and we are definitely noticing a pattern here but constantine doesn't seem to be noticing it the way that we the readers are and he turns off the radio and then he drifts out into midday london finally ready to go get some breakfast right around noon and in a great neil gaiman turn of phrase um, it actually is phrased as that something is trying to tell you of somebody um, rather than somebody telling you of something. Um, and that plays out a little bit. So then he ends up at a diner um, where he strolls in having started his day. Um, and so he orders himself a cheeseburger and two mugs of coffee, which is really the best way to start a day is not getting out of bed till at least 1045 and starting with coffee and a cheeseburger as essentially your breakfast. Yeah, as someone who doesn't eat eggs and basically hates all breakfast foods, uh, my dream paradise is a world where I get to have a hamburger and two cups of coffee at eight in the morning or whenever it is I'm actually having breakfast. I, I yearn I yearn for that world. <laughs> and it's interesting to me, Glenn, you lived in England um, and I have not um, visited England other than uh, the portions of Heathrow Airport, but uh, I would never traditionally think of – there being kind of Americana style diners and cheeseburgers as being the kind of thing that one would order. So uh, I didn't know if you have any thoughts on that particular kind of setting. Yes, right. Well, this is the Easy Diner. That's what it says on the window. And the, the Easy Diner is actually a, a real place in London still. And it is this slice of Americana. It's an American-themed restaurant in London, much the way that uh, here in uh, the United States, we might go to a, a Mexican restaurant or a Chinese restaurant or something like that. At this point, it's become really iconic and I think has become kind of a franchise and is even something really just of kind of a tourist trap. But it only opened in 1987. So at the time that Gaiman was writing this comic, this was a new place and I think was just uh, uh, an exotic cuisine restaurant in London. So there might be something of a joke going on here, but what actually matters about this setting is that Gaiman needs, or at least he wants, Constantine to be playing with a jukebox. And of course, where do you find a jukebox? But American diners. And what matters here, right, is that he's trying to play a song on the jukebox, but instead of the song that he's actually selected, the jukebox plays Sweet Dreams. And and really, at this point, Constantine finally 
starts to put this all together. But he's interrupted by a homeless woman named Mad Hetty, who is banging on the diner window. And uh, uh, this is a great introduction to a character who's going to be with us for quite a while in this saga. Yeah, Mad Hetty will appear a couple more times in the Sandman run, as well as in um, the spinoff series, uh, Death, the High Cost of Living. Um, but she originates in uh, Hellblazer comic as this kind of homeless fixture woman on the street who, you know, occasionally might yell out information that is helpful or otherwise. Um, we have her pounding on the glass to inform him that Morpheus is back. The Sandman. And, and John Constantine doesn't know who that is because John Constantine has not been around for hundreds of years the way Mad Hetty has or claims to have been. And Sandman has until recently been imprisoned for the length of John Constantine's life. Yeah, there's some really great stuff going on uh, in this scene. We we do get another uh, addition to the litany of names and titles that Dream goes by. One here is Oniromancer. And uh, and this is a Greek word that basically means dream wizard, just like necromancer is a Greek word that more or less means death wizard. Normally, when we encounter Oniromancy, either the word or the concept in ancient literature, though, it, it really means dream interpretation. So you can think of uh, Joseph from the book of Genesis is really probably the best example. But of course, we know that in this case, it really means proper supernatural power over dreams. So just a little etymological wordplay there. But what really matters in this scene, uh, to me, narratively anyway, is that even though just two issues into this series, Dream seems pretty powerful and a pretty big deal. I mean, he's the brother of death, right? But he's unknown even to somebody whose business it is to know about supernatural forces. So this is a kind of a, a way of, of, of showing us that the world the dream inhabits or his role in the universe is, is deep and, and buried, right? That people who even are in the know about these things are perhaps unaware of his existence. Which also says something about how successful Burgess was in, you know, everyone knew as that wonderful piece in the Daily Mail told us all, um, that he had captured something, but it never came to light what or whom he had captured. It, it's interesting that he didn't want to highlight his own failure in not capturing death, but in capturing dream to at least get some kind of cachet from that success. Yeah, that does really shed some interesting light on the character of Burgess, who was really very single-minded, narrow-minded, maybe with a, with a single purpose, and and felt like imprisoning the brother of death was was somehow a, a failure, somehow a shame, because it wasn't what his actual uh, goal had been. And I guess that really was, in some ways, the the plot of the first issue was was seeing him kind of screw up that situation that he'd landed himself in. I'm not saying that I would have done better in that situation, uh, but he certainly could have, I think, if he'd, if he'd had a different way of, of thinking about it. Uh, and it is interesting that, right, he kept that secret from the rest of the occult world, even though he was saying in the moments they're doing that ritual that when we capture death, I'm going to become the most famous and most powerful person in occult circles. So he was intending to brag about it if it were successful. Well, we, we switch scenes now and we, we return to the house where we started, but now it's from the point of view of a new character, uh, a young man who is here to burgle the place. But he's not 
you know, a burglar by necessity or even by profession at all. In fact, he works in finance and he drove here in a Porsche. So what this really is, is something that he does for fun. It's a sport called creeping in which you break into a home while someone is there and you just steal some stuff. It's it's a sport just to see if you can get away with this. Now, I, I have never heard of this, but uh, Brent, maybe you know if this was a real thing in the UK in the late 80s. I had never heard of it either, so I I don't know. Well, we'll have to uh, appeal to listeners who might have some more knowledge about creeping and and burgling, uh, or just having lived in the UK in the the late 80s to to let us know. But as soon as this guy enters the the house, he comes under the power of the the dream sand. First, he dreams that he's having some really great sex with, I I think, the, the woman we met earlier on the first page. And then he's driving a Lamborghini 150 miles per hour while people watch with envy. And then he's Jesus, pure and perfect and dying for people's sins. And we see him here on a, on a cross. And this thought uh, brings him to Superman. And this drawing of Superman here on this page is absolutely priceless. It's the type of drawing a child would make of himself as Superman. And so I think maybe we're seeing here the, the dream sand accessing the, the deepest parts of this man's mind. Uh, as the listeners know, um, since Sandman exists, as we saw Batman in the prior issue and stuff, we, uh, in the same universe as Superman, Superman is actually not a fictional character in this universe. The man believes that he really is someone else who is Superman. But as you said, it does look like a child's drawing. It also strikes me, though, how if that's the way people think Superman looks, that's why they maybe don't know – if there's any connection to that reporter who wears glasses, because this this figure doesn't seem to wear glasses, so it must not be Clark Kent. Yeah, it's actually not clear that this figure is uh, is entirely human. It might actually be a teddy bear or something. I mean, it's a kid's drawing, basically, <laughs> and it looks like crap. All right. Well, all of this so far has really been prologue to the, the team up that we're about to get. And and first here, we get a montage of Constantine doing some research, uh, much like uh, Giles and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But this research is not about the, the Sandman business, though he did tell Matt Hetty that he was going to look into it. But it's about something else that he's up to. But all the while, he keeps hearing songs about Dream. And so we get a kind of musical montage here as well. We get some Eurythmics, we get some Bobby Darren, and even some Frankie goes to Hollywood. This is Gaiman pulling out all the stops on his uh, his love of of pop music and and his his previous role as a as a rock journalist. But on the third day, Dream finally catches up to John Constantine, and he's just kind of there, hulking and lurking in Constantine's doorway. It's a, it's a pretty great panel. Well, what's great is it's it's John Constantine opening his the key to his one bedroom flat, um, and. Dream is inside already. So it's not that, you know, Dream is coming and knocking. Dream, these barriers mean nothing to him, which we'll see later too. Uh, But this is where I'd made the comment before of this being a Hellblazer comic more than a Sandman comic. Here we are literally halfway through page eight of the comic before Dream actually makes an appearance. Um, and he's appearing very tall and ominous, um, which reminds me of how he appeared in the frame when he was interacting with the three that are one, um, the three witches, um, versus how he appeared when he maybe let his guard down in front of his uh, faithful servant, Lucian. Yeah, he seems to be intentionally trying to appear menacing here as he's going to try to get 
Constantine to give him the pouch or or help him find the pouch. And as you say, they get into some some banter here where Constantine is you know cracking wise like the hard boiled detective that he is. It's really, in fact, really it's a it's a classic comic and straight man riff in which Dream is most definitely the straight man here on the page, and he does just blatantly explain that he's here about the the pouch. And Constantine recalls that he had this pouch at one point. He remembers that he bought it at a garage sale in San Francisco, but he says that he never managed to get the drawstrings open and he hasn't seen it in ages and he's maybe not entirely sure what's become of it, but he thinks it's probably in his storage unit where he keeps stuff from all his previous apartments. And there seem to be many previous apartments. I think he lists three here. He gets around, he travels a lot, uh, and he probably gets kicked out of places quite frequently. Yeah, right. So there's a real sense that Constantine doesn't maybe have uh, real deep roots in his community. And I, I think that this is going to be uh, kind of a, a, a theme, really, of, of his emotional arc in this story. But before we get there, we have to go to the storage facility where these two characters look around for a few hours. But Dream is just really annoyed the whole time because he insists that the pouch isn't there, right? He says that he would be able to feel its presence if it were. But there are some interesting things in the storage unit, namely a a box of books with titles on their spines, such as uh, Liverpool, American Gothic, Crisis, and The Plant Elemental. And I'm not entirely sure what these are, but Brent, I suspect that you are. Yeah, so it's not clear to me whether these are books or they're collections of um, uh, files that perhaps um, the kind where you have the uh, flap that goes over and the drawstring, the, those great ones that are kind of a manila envelope, but more so. But the Brejoria were a, a cult that was involved with trying to cause problems at one point that he had come across. The plant elemental is a reference to Swamp Thing, which again, that is the origin of John Constantine's character is in the Swamp Thing comic book, um, as created, uh, written by Alan Moore, Alan Moore. Crisis was this major event that happened, um, continuity, uh, changing event across all of DC comics in the eighties. And John Constantine actually is one of the few characters who knew that the crisis was coming. The crisis on infinite earths, earths, as it was called, knew that that was coming and also still knew after the retroactive continuity that it had occurred. And the result of that particular crisis was to take care of the fact that you had an infinite number of Earths and collapse things down so there would be a finite number of Earths. So many characters that were considered part of continuity that you had Batman who was married to Batwoman and he had gray hair and he had like, you know, his own other children could exist simultaneously in a continuity that also has Batman being a younger man who is not married, um, where there is no Batwoman, um, and does not have children. Like, so this is how they then were trying to clean up the continuity and DC would do this many, 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 many more times as time went. But John Constantine, um, because of his special role, for whatever reason, had awareness that the crisis was coming and has awareness after the fact that it occurred. Um, American Gothic, uh, is probably reference to the time that John spent traveling around America. And I think it might be even the title of one of one or two of the comic books in which he is doing that. Um, Liverpool is where the character John Constantine is from. It's where he was born and raised. So that might be about himself or his family. Um, and I'm not sure what Tibet is, but you can't involve occult stuff in the ladies without mentioning Tibet to make it seem worldly. That's part 
part of the reason why, you know, Doctor Strange in Marvel's continuity spends some time in Tibet and the uh, surrounding areas. So, but I do like that uh, part of the research again that John Constantine is doing here. It's a lot of kneeling and looking through things and standing up and pulling things on or off of shelves, which is the same thing we had seen two pages earlier in the library he was in or bookstore. Um, it's a lot of researching is pretty much that, I think. It's a lot of kneeling and then standing. There's never anything in those middle rows, you know, it's all either just out of reach, high or low, right? Yeah, there's nothing glamorous about the profession of researcher, whether that's as a, as an academic or as a detective, whether it's hard boiled or occult or or uh, or some other flavor. And uh, I, I really like your reading of this as being Constantine's case files. I think that's exactly what they are. Now that you've suggested it, looking at the image a little bit more closely, that's that's precisely what they seem to be. So that's very cool, and I think it's great also that he keeps them uh, locked up in a storage facility and uh, maybe isn't even sure that they're there that he has. Them, but I, I like to imagine the kind of uh, metafictional idea that someone else has gotten in there, Alan Moore, I suppose, uh, and is is turning them into to novels, uh, co- graphic novels, comic books behind his his back. That's what I'm gonna. That's my, my new headcanon here. I think. Well, this scene concludes with uh, with another discovery, an actual discovery. It's a, a photograph of Constantine's ex girlfriend Rachel and. Now he realizes that she's the person who he was with when he had the pouch and that she must have run off with it. And the the next scene shows us Dream and Constantine in a cab that's driven by Constantine's friend Chas. This is, again, some more some more comedy here. But this is really an opportunity to give us some backstory on who Rachel is. And we learn here that she was a junkie and they were living together, but Constantine had to leave on an occult detective mission for six months. He had to go to Alaska. And when he got back, she was gone along with his stereo, his television and his collection of silver surfer comics, uh, basically anything that she could sell and and turn into money that she could use for drugs. But I actually have a question about this because I, I didn't think the narrative was quite clear. So is your understanding of this, Brent, either just from reading this on the page here or knowing Hellblazer better than I do, was Rachel already a junkie or was this something that happened to her because she was left alone with the pouch for six months? The impression I got was that she was always a junkie and the pouch became uh, – the pouch is probably giving her the best high that she has ever experienced, more so than she would have gotten from other drugs. It it unfortunately had the worst consequences for her uh, coming across that effect, which is something I think we see a lot in some of these, um, well, Hellblazer comics as well as Sandman comics in terms of the negative things um, and flaws that individuals have can be amplified um, and made tragic or even more tragic when they come into contact with Hell with John Constantine in terms of Hellblazer or in terms of Sandman with Sandman slash Dream, um, is it's, it's oftentimes these other folks who, um, would have not maybe had a great life, but had a far worse life because of the proximity to the protagonists. In addition, um, there's the kind of expanded consciousness um, take that some people have with psychedelic drugs that um, there's no evidence that that's what Rachel is a junkie of versus something like an opiate, perhaps. But similar circles, John is probably running in people who are trying to uh, push the boundaries or the perceived boundaries of perception um, as well as uh, their own minds um, through the use of um, illicit substances. 
Right. And we even saw that clearly in the very first issue where that's something that uh, the young Burgess is, is having to, uh, to, to try to create some rules for, for all the, the, the hippies, as they're described, who are joining his cult in the 1960s. Well, at this point, they, they arrive at the suburban home that we've seen twice already. This is the home of Rachel's father, who is a retired pilot. And they're here just to ask him if he knows where Rachel is. But of course, we, the readers, are, are well aware that Rachel is here. She's upstairs in her room high on the dream sand and that her dreaming affects anyone else who comes in the house. So we know that automatically there is something at stake, at least for Constantine, just entering the house. And immediately, Dream knows. He can he can tell that the pouch is here. So Constantine tells Chas to go stay in the car. And Dream wants Constantine to do the same thing. And he says, things are free in this house that should not be loose on Earth. But Constantine won't have it. He's not going to do what Dream is ordering him to do here because he's intrigued, but also because he cares about Rachel. So he's going to go into this house. And as they enter the house, uh, the electricity's cut off. And so Dream warns John Constantine, watch out for the human. And then he flicks on his lighter and sees the weeping head um we assume still connected to the body uh of the creeper who we'd seen earlier uh he seems to be catatonic and uh not faring well at all so i'm assuming that he will have difficulty making uh good investments tomorrow when he goes to work uh if he is able to go to work at all yeah, that Porsche has been towed by now, unfortunately, and I don't know that he'll he'll ever see it again. Dream explains to Constantine that that this guy is being eaten by dreams, eaten alive by dreams, which uh, uh, sounds absolutely horrendous. The one thing that's interesting about the creeper, though, is you know when we last left him and his the waking dreams that supposedly are, I guess, consuming him, he looked to be having. Literally the time of his life. He was having great sex. He was driving his fast car. Everyone wanted to be him. He literally was Jesus. Then he literally was cartoon Superman. But the actual body that we're seeing, the face and head, the expression we're seeing on this face is one of absolute misery. And so I think this is the juxtaposition of how the person on, you know, the drugs or in this case being consumed by the dreams thinks internally they're experiencing things versus what is actually happening to their um, bodies and minds in the real world outside of the effect of kind of the opiate of the dreams. Right. This is exactly the thing that was called eternal waking in the, the first issue. This is what happens to the young, young Burgess this is what dream does to him as an unspeakable torment. And that's what this guy is going through uh, just because he stepped foot into this, into this house. I want to talk about this business with the light that you mentioned as well, Brent, you pointed out that Constantine needs to use his lighter to see this body because it's dark in here. Dream does not need that. Apparently he can see in the dark, but when he realizes that Constantine cannot see as well, as he can and that he almost tripped over this guy uh, dream makes a bright magical light for constantine and he also did something similar a few pages back when he magically opened the front door to the house so we're learning a little bit here about dreams powers in the waking world and it seems that he is somehow able to manipulate the physical world by his own will uh, presumably we're going to learn a lot more about the rules of this as the series progresses but i, I remember uh, you know being a little bit shocked by this on my first read, thinking that his powers were limited to the dream world or to 
using dreams here in the real world, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It does raise a lot of questions, Glenn, because, I mean, we've seen him weakened before, and he can't just simply travel everywhere very quickly, running as fast as the Flash or flying like Superman, who exists in this world. Um, in order to find his pouch himself, he's still reliant on the assistance of others. But setting up the stakes for what conflicts he, the character of Dream, would actually find to be a burden or challenge um, effectively is something that is it, it's interesting to see how Neil Gaiman is going to go about doing this because the more you introduce powers to a character, the more then, okay, well, doors are not a problem for him then. So we can't ever put doors necessarily in front of them unless there's something special about the door. So there have to be other things that generate the conflict and other obstacles that will get in the character's way. Right. And we can't say that there is an obstacle here in this story, which is that he doesn't know where his stuff is. And even though he can sense the pouch, that seems to be restricted to a pretty small proximity, right? He can't just pop up in the waking world, show up on Earth and detect where his pouch is. So there are some constraints here uh, that are going on. Uh, doors and lights are simply not going to, 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 be, uh, to be obstacles for him. But even with this light, when they open a bedroom door, Constantine instinctively flips the light switch and he gets some kind of goo or ichor, I guess is really what it is, on himself. And suddenly he finds himself in a dream. He's falling to the earth from very high up, and he remembers that he jumped from his plane right after it caught on fire. And, and basically, he's entered the dream of Rachel's father, who we have just learned as a pilot. And Dream reaches into this reality and grabs hold of Constantine and pulls him back into the waking world. And and now we see that this whole room is covered with this ichor. And, and, and Dream explains that what that is, what this goo is, is the body of Rachel's father, who's still alive, but turned into this fleshy, gross ichor while his body is being consumed uh, by by dreams uh, and it's this is really one of the most horrifying things i've ever read yeah it's a it's an extremely horrifying page um and it has stuck with me to this day i remembered before reading this issue that this was the comic where you we are going to encounter this particular um thought as well as the art to accompaniment accompany it and uh, uh it really is quite something disgusting Although I do need to mention on top of that, there's an interesting thought that John Constantine has because he feels sick. He can feel the hot dog and coffee that he grabbed for dinner trying to fight their way back up for air, which makes sense that you at this point would have to stop yourself from throwing up. Um, but then it caused my brain, at least in this read, to wonder if did he get the hot dog and coffee before he got back to his apartment and encountered dream? Or at some point did his friend Chaz, who was driving the cab pull by a hot dog stand and he got a hot dog while dream was just standing there glowering at him. Um, <laughs> I, I would like to believe it's the latter. Yes. That's certainly my head canon now. And if, uh, if we have any artists in the, the listening audience who want to draw that panel for us, uh, we'd be real delighted to, to see it. <laughs> Well, there is something similar to this fleshy goo in the hallway, and 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 now the the dreams that are in the house that are that are eating these bodies actually speak to Dream and to Constantine, and Constantine demands that the dreams let them pass, let them get to Rachel's room, but they basically laugh at him until 
dream speaks. And when he does, the these other dreams, they freak out. And they don't believe that this person can actually be dream, can actually be Morpheus, the Sandman, because he's been gone too long. But Dream tells them that they've exceeded their bounds and then he makes them disappear. And I, I find it really interesting that although Dream is their maker and their ruler, right, the, the, the king of their domain, and he also has supernatural power over them, they're unaware of him, unaware of his presence, or at least they don't recognize him until he actually speaks. And then once they are aware that it's him, then they just immediately cower before him and beg apologies and, and ask not to be destroyed. And they seem to almost evaporate from the walls and from the door um, and move out of the way. Um, and I, I wonder, we never know what happens to any one of those little dream beings, whether they he has destroyed them and we just don't see that on panel or whether they've gone back and le- returned to the dreaming itself or – um, if they've scurried off to somewhere else and they're trying to hope that he doesn't ever find them. So I had mentioned uh, that this very much is a Hellblazer comic more than a Sandman comic because uh, John Constantine seems to be our real protagonist. We don't ever, uh, unlike prior issues of Sandman, we don't ever have dreams thought balloons. We we have – we, we only experience um, and know anything that Sandman is thinking or saying because John Constantine is witnessing it. He's our point of view character. And the panels, um, the layout of them on this page uh, starts going askew as the room enters, which after the disgusting couple pages before it kind of very much keeps you off kilter as the reader as a, I imagine John Constantine currently is experiencing this too, where it smells – um, terrible pear drops, ketones, sewers, morgues, garbage, hell. Um, and that's not what Dream is experiencing. It is Dream's hand opening the door. Dream is the one who is leading John into this place, um, at this point. But it's John who's experiencing this. And the, the panels themselves of the rest of the page then are at a 45 degree angle, um, which I think does a nice job of conveying kind of how off-putting and out otherworldly this is, even though it looks normal. Yeah, right. Well, there's no goo in here and there's no no weird lighting effects or anything like that. But I, I like this idea that, that it's all off kilter because John himself is reeling from the effects of all of this just grotesqueness that's surrounding him and, and, and really – hitting all of his senses and nauseating him, making him uh, dizzy and, and woozy. I, I really like that interpretation of what's going on here in the art. And, you know, this, it all on the next page straightens out again, as we get a, a full page panel of Rachel in her bed. Uh, she, she greets them and she even recognizes Constantine and, and this large panel of her naked on the, the bed covered in sores and looking broken and sort of hollow and, and, uh, almost emptily reciting the lyrics to all I have to do is dream. This is all, I mean, it's a great panel. It's a very, it's a very interesting panel, but the kind of bigness of it and then the uprightness of it compared to the previous page might suggest that this site, the, or the, or the presence of Rachel uh, sort of sobers Constantine up, right? Makes him hyper aware and, and gives him the, the strength to fight off all the sort of nauseating senses that he's experiencing and focus on this person he cares about. 
And in contrast to what John is experiencing and what we are experiencing as the reader, um, uh, seeing things kind of more through his lens, Dream sees his pouch and picks it up and says, we can go now. Um, and I guess he does note here that the dreams will return to their proper location in time. He's all set to go, Dream is. And, and John won't have this because he doesn't think it's all right to leave Rachel like this. Um, and he finally loses it and yells at Dream that you can't leave her like that. Right. He doesn't spell it out, but he makes an implicit argument here that Dream has some sort of culpability or some some kind of responsibility for Rachel's condition and is therefore morally obligated to help her. But as you've already pointed out, like Dream almost is unaware that she even exists. And he's he's robotic here, even as Constantine is is confronting him with this. And he says that he can't actually fix her body. Her metabolism has been destroyed and the sand was the only thing keeping her alive. And there is nothing he can do about that. I also says that without the sand and he's definitely taking it back uh rachel will die soon and and die painfully and at at this news and and i think maybe especially at dreams lack of concern his lack of empathy constantine gets super angry and he just yells at dream he really just unloads on him and and this display of emotion I think really actually works. It's in fact, seems to be a good strategy. And so now dream says that he will help her, but uh, he tells Constantine to leave the room. And again, though it's not explicit in the text, we can see that Constantine understands that dream is not going to heal her body, but what he's going to do is, is euthanize her. He's going to let her die now and, and, and die without that pain. And he lets her go with a pleasant dream and, and, the best of, of all possible worlds for her at this point actually is a dream of her um, being young and beautiful again and seeing John Constantine who's been waiting for her um, and still kind of in a playful couple banter are walking off into the sunset together um, and just really leaving her with a really beautiful image as she is uh, – dying but as you said he had to be driven to do this action because he had no regard for her until someone else forces him to consider her as a being who matters yeah interestingly the next panel that we see is dream hovering or maybe really kind of lurking over her body as she dies but he covers her dead body with a blanket. And I thought this was a surprisingly respectful gesture as if he is capable of treating people like people. He just kind of has to be told he should. And at this point, I think, Glenn, we don't know whether it's just being imprisoned for almost 100 years is the thing that has caused him to be come so distant from people. Or if this is the way he always was. Um, and that's something that we'll have to be looking at as we go through the comics. I think you and I, having read the series before, have a sense as to these things. But um, for those working their way through the first time, um, I think there's a lot of questions as to, like, who is this character who, while may not be the central protagonist of this particular issue, because that's a John Constantine comic called Sandman, um, uh, he is – the protagonist we're supposed to be following through the series. And we are going to learn a lot more about this in, in issues to come. But in this issue, we we come to the last scene now. Dream has his pouch, and so he's off to hell to recover his helm. 
But before he goes, Constantine has a favor to ask. He explains that ever since a terrible adventure he had in Newcastle a decade ago, he's had horrible nightmares, and he would very much like for those to go away. And Dream agrees. He does this favor for Constantine, and then he disapparates, basically. And the issue ends with Constantine walking to the car, singing the song, Mr. Sandman. And the last line of this issue is, tell me that my lonesome life is over. And so we are left with an image of Constantine alone and singing about the burden of that loneliness. And I think it's a really nice way to end this story, uh, seeing Constantine having gone through this uh, emotional arc, confronting a relationship from the past and, and maybe having to deal with some of his own isolation. And that's really the best that John Constantine usually ever gets is where he gets to end a story arc feeling a little less lonesome and the hope that he'll be a little less plagued by the nightmares of mistakes that he uh, has made in the past. Well, I'm thinking about what Constantine is feeling, what he's going through, having just have to reconnect with a a woman he loved, a woman he lived with for a time and uh, to be a party to her death, to have to advocate, to have to fight for uh, a painless death, fight to euthanize her. It's interesting to note that he is does seem to be very alone, very isolated in this story, but so too is Dream. And in some way, we have these two very different characters uh, dealing with the, the same thing, kind of uh, traveling through their own past, encountering things that uh, used to be in their lives. For Dream, it's this pouch. For Constantine, it's his ex-girlfriend. It's, it's Rachel. But they also both seem to even just react to their loneliness, their isolation, maybe some of the tragedies of their lives in very different ways, where Constantine cracks wise about things. And and Dream just seems maybe to, to shut off his emotions uh, in this case. And I found it to be a real nice contrast. And they both share some culpability for, uh, at least arguably, for what happened to Rachel. Because it may be that it's Dream's pouch and he created this thing that allows, you know, this terribleness, you know, to occur if put in the hands of a junkie. But it's John Constantine who had the pouch, purchased it, and then didn't notice until now that the pouch was missing and figure out that Rachel had taken it. You know, in all of the time that folks often spend, you know, particularly when they're alone, about people they've been in relationships before, usually you remember things that maybe they took from you, um, both emotionally as well as physically. Um, but this had not occurred to John and, and they, I think they both have some, they should both be feeling some amount of guilt for what was done to Rachel because of her being in both of their orbits or the orbit of dreams pouch, at least. Right. John had no business ever just leaving that pouch lying around or any other type of magical object. I mean, you've got a storage facility, man. So lock that lock that stuff up in there. Take the key to Alaska with you. It's it's really not that really not that hard. It's a pretty easy idea. Well, I think I think now that we are uh, are criticizing the way that John Constantine runs his occult detective business, uh, let's move into to talking about some of the the bigger aspects of this issue. Let's uh, let's start by talking about the the Dave McKean cover a particularly beautiful and interesting cover this time yeah and it's a it's a wonderful image of john constantine looking very mournful on the 
the cover. Um, he does not look like he's particularly cracking wise, or if he is cracking wise, then it's out of a place of him suffering personal pain. Um, and there is a letter perhaps, um, that is on fire kind of near him. And there's a number of other objects then in the curios, um, surrounding him. There's, uh, looks like a photograph of a sleeping woman's eye perhaps. And there's part of the scream. Yeah, this close-up of Edvard Munch's uh, famous painting, The Scream, in the, the top right of the curio cabinet, I think is really interesting. Because that that painting, that very famous painting, is meant to uh, encapsulate a sort of existential angst, right? It's just this man on a bridge. He's not even alone. There are other people on the bridge with him just just screaming because he can't deal with the, all of the the pressures of modern society and that seems to me to kind of be John Constantine in a in a nutshell and additionally in the bottom left there it looks like it's a tarot card of uh, it looks like it might be justice and i'm not sure that there actually any justice played out in this particular comic in any way. Yeah, I suppose that might depend a little bit on our definition of justice. But I think if we take it, if we take justice to mean something like uh, setting things right or the right ordering of the, the world, we are continuing to see small bits and pieces of the, the world uh, going back to the way that they should be now that Dream is no longer imprisoned. And, and this maybe includes uh, Constantine's nightmares. Uh, we might even think of the, the dreams that are, are loose in Rachel's father's house, for example. Uh, maybe not the, the highest form of, of abstract justice that we can look for, uh, but maybe just in terms of the world being put back the way that it's meant to be. So dream a little dream of me. It's a song. Is there something more there? Or is it just kind of a clever catch-all? Yeah, this is a this is a great song. Of course, I think most people have heard this. It's it's from 1931. The lyrics are by uh, Gus Kahn, who was a, a real famous American songwriter of the the first half of the 20th century. And it was originally performed in the the I think the version that most people would hear on the radio. I think it is the version that is playing here is the. Ozzie Nelson version, who was, of course, the father of the, I guess, slightly more famous Ricky Nelson, I guess, slightly more famous in the sense that he was important in the early development of of rock music. But this, the song Dream a Little Dream of Me is a, a love song about dreaming of your love while you are apart. And, and, that is exactly how Rachel dies. So I think that's a, a kind of explicit connection with the title. But also, we should say, right, that songs about dreams are everywhere in this story, and every one of them is a love song. So everything is underscoring, all of these songs are underscoring the emotional arc of Constantine in this story, right? His loneliness, his inability to maintain a relationship, right? We learned that he has a series of ex-girlfriends, not just Rachel, and, and even his inability to, to maintain a home, right? He moves all the time. He's got this storage facility where nothing is organized, right? He is a person who is really, uh, really rootless and, and maybe doesn't doesn't function well in the, in the real world. And that's kind of the, the subtext in some ways of all of these, these pretty little pop songs uh, about, about dreaming about someone you love. It's also a little selfish too, isn't it? Dream a little dream of me, not dream a little dream of something that makes you happy, but I want you to dream about me. <laughs> Yes, right, right. Some of the songs that we do here are the uh, the narrator of the song saying, "I'm going to dream about you because I love you so much." Yeah, this is selfish. This is this is commanding someone else to dream about you, which I suppose could be uh, a little creepy uh, if we want to want to take it that way. That's always a fun game to play with pop songs, of course. <laughs> 
Well, Glenn, was there a panel that uh, you particularly struck you as your favorite? There's a lot of good ones in this particular issue. The panel that struck me the most, that I think had the most emotional resonance with me, is very near the end. It's it's on page twenty two. It's the the third horizontal panel from the top, and and this is uh, the last image of Rachel's death dream. The the second of two panels that we we get on this, and this one is is a zoomed out image of this this really just beautiful, really gorgeous mountain landscape on a on a summer evening as the sun is setting. We see John and Rachel walking toward that sunset, and the text that really describes this, as we said in the recap, is it's the best of all possible worlds. And my first response to this is is just purely emotional, right? Despite my best efforts at imprisoning death in my basement, I am in fact going to have to die someday. And this here, this is what I would want my last moments of awareness to be like, right? Spending time with my wife in the mountains and saying I love yous to each other. But what I really like about this panel is that it emphasizes the these themes of of loneliness and 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 I guess even longing, really. And I'm reading this as Rachel's subconscious rather than as an image that Dream is specifically manufacturing for her, though you may disagree, and that would be a fun conversation. But with that reading, reading this as Rachel's subconscious, uh, what I find compelling is that Rachel's last wish isn't for the drug, but is for a, a real partnership with John Constantine in a world where there are no other human forces working on them, working against them, really, we should say. And this gives us a sense that the the world itself is designed to to keep people from really truly being with each other and that this perfect love of songs like dream a little dream of me this perfect love exists only in dreams or in pop songs about dreams and one of the other things i love about this panel is well two things one i love that there's a little distance from the top panels on the page which are back in the horror that is reality um that there's the second panel that kind of breaks things up so at this point you you emotionally you are feeling a little bit better about the state that Rachel is in at this point than you were when the page began uh but also there's no mention of any names in this particular panel and because it's from a distance and you can see the silhouettes of two people, they could be any two people. They, they may not even be a man and a woman, just any two people who missed each other, but playfully pretend they don't and who love each other. And so I think it's a lot easier to, uh, as, as you identified, this is a, a wonderful image that any of us maybe would hope would be the last thing that we would cognitively be experiencing before we passed away yeah it's kind of a, it's a canvas that we can imprint our ourselves onto or or identify with and I, I i hadn't noticed until you spelled that out how how that worked on me subconsciously but it certainly did work on me well well brent what was your favorite panel of this issue well uh as is often my whim uh, i went with the joke that i thought was the best um on page nine in the bottom right uh so dream has just shown up in john's uh one bedroom flat and uh has said well let's go get the pouch and john had just explained the panel before that he can't go on public transport that way it'd be embarrassing and so then in this last panel on the page uh dream has asked if if this is better uh and it's him with his arms crossed wearing a blue trench coat uh, very much almost in a parody of the way that john himself looks and john's response is uh 
I ought to introduce you to the big green bloke, by which he means the swamp thing. You'd like him. He hasn't got a sense of humor either. So this is Dream, though, making fun of John Constantine, which is uh, John may be unaware of because sometimes people who are very good at poking, poking jokes at other people are not good at receiving jokes about themselves. Um, or John might be aware of it and is just going with it, um, uh, trying to be the straight man for the only place in the story that he's able to do it. Uh, it's also uh, a motif that Neil Gaiman later uh, makes fun of in the Books of Magic series that so many of the arcane ar- artists, um, the occult experts in the DC universe all wear trench coats of some kind or their cloaks oftentimes are depicted as that. Um, and so uh, John Constantine had dubbed them the trench coat brigade at that point. And as an aficionado of trench coats before, and influenced in part by these same comics, um, uh, I just appreciate uh, a well-worn trench coat uh, in the late 1980s style. But uh, but here is a great bit where Dream is a- exhibiting kind of a joke. So uh, I I like this panel. It nicely breaks up um, the lot of the comic um, and keeps it slightly lighter, so it's not just as dark, uh, particularly as dark as it will get to us by the end. And uh, I don't know. We may have uh, we may have just identified the uh, the cosplay outfits that will uh, will don if we ever uh, make it to a con together. Well, I'll probably just be wearing a trench coat anyway. So if people then think that I put in the work of cosplaying it, they can think that that's very nice of them to uh, assume that I am cosplaying and not just that I'm just wearing the same coat I would wear any other day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that gets to the real even spirit of their relationship here, right? Uh, where I'm the only one who knows that anything intentional is uh, is going on. But uh, I think now that we are uh, planning our outfits for upcoming uh, comic book conventions, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Bruntel. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like occult detectives and love crafting and horror, check out Glenn's other podcast, Elder Sign. Also, head on over to the Clay Temple forums to let us know if you imagine that uh, Sandman was standing there when John Constantine was ordering a hot dog. And what does John Constantine put on his hot dog? Uh, For you writers, you can describe it with your words. And for those of you who uh, can draw, I cannot, um, then we'd be very happy to see what your sketches would be of a glowering dream, I assume, uh, ordering a hot dog as well. Or perhaps he summoned a hot dog from a dream. I I don't know, but claytemplemedia.com. <laughs> yeah, I would love to read, love to see uh, these these interpretations of this, this scene that we've made up. Well, next time we're going to be reading issue number four, A Hope in Hell. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs> <laughs>